きなこと言ってすみませんありがとうそんなに言ってくれたのはお前が初めてだよいえそんなにおっしゃっていただいて Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, whatever time it may be while you're listening to this. This is the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is episode, I didn't even look it up and we're in a rush, so figure it out yourselves, listeners. But we will be discussing tonight、uh, Kenji Mizuguchi's The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum.、Uh, for years, I thought this was、uh, Chrysanthemum's plural,、uh, but apparently, this is the new correct official translation Criterion has spoken, and so it shall be. Uh, my name is Scott Nye. Joining me to discuss this great film are David Blakesley. David, how's it going? Doing very well, Scott. And Ryan Gallagher. Ryan, how are you? Doing well, Scott. Thanks for asking me to be on tonight's episode. Hey, thanks for joining us.、Uh, so, yeah, this is a very recent release. We usually discuss kind of older releases on these mainline episodes, but we, we're all so excited about this film. I think rightfully so. Like I said, this is by number 832, so it's、uh, brand spanking new, and Criterion describes it as such. This heartrending masterpiece by Kenji, Ken, Kenji Mizuguchi about the give and take between life and art marked the full, first full realization of the hypnotic long takes and eloquent camera movements that would come to define the director's films.、Uh, Kiku Nusuke, the adopted son of a legendary kabuki actor who is striving to achieve stardom by mastering female roles, turns to his infant brother's wet nurse for support and affection, and she soon gives up everything to her, for her beloved's creative glory. Offering a, yeah, offering a fascinating glimpse behind the scenes of the Kabuki theater in the late 19th century, the story of the last chrysanthemum provides a critique of the oppression of women and the sacrifices required of them, and represents the pinnacle of Mizuguchi's early career. David, you and I have been discussing Mizuguchi's early career in some depth in the Eclipse Viewer, and on that show, I mentioned quickly that I'm surprised that、uh, I was asked at Any point to talk about early Japanese cinema. You know, if you'd asked me <laughs> 10 years ago where、uh, my interest would lie, that would not be the answer I would have given. I, when I was first getting into Criterion, you know, I always figured these were movies for somebody else, that、uh, Criterion was releasing, you know, movies for me, which were kind of the more recent American stuff. And then there are all these movies that other people were interested in. That's, that's good enough for them, but I don't know if they'd ever be for me. And then just slowly over time, you know, things whittle away at you. You get through a certain kind of film and you start to. Look elsewhere, and Mizuguchi was kind of the last of the big Japanese directors I got to. And I tried to watch, you know,、uh, Sancho the Bailiff in college back when I heard that Terrence Malick had tried to make a stage play of it, and I just couldn't get into it. But then sometime in the last couple of years, his films have really clicked with me. And I'm glad I got to this one kind of late in the game because this is a really、uh, dense film. But it's、uh, viewing it this time around, I'd seen it once before, but viewing it this time around, it really is just a gut punch of a film and really stirred up in me the kind of emotions I. Don't really see that much in many films, even the kind of you know, artsy fartsy films that we watch for this show. But you were the one who picked it, David, so I was curious if you had seen it before, and if not, did it pay off? Yeah, I had seen it a few years ago. I kind of went through a Mizuguchi marathon、uh, when I just kind of wanted to catch all the stuff that was on Hulu, and of course, this was a, one of those Hulu transfers. Uh, along with the、uh, the films in the,、uh, the Eclipse series set, Kenji Mizuguchi's Fallen Women.、Uh, we're kind of midstream with that right now. We talked about Osaka Elegy and、uh, Sisters of the Gion、uh, just a few days ago. And that episode will probably be out by the time this one hits the air, but we'll see how that all goes. But yeah, and so this one kind of falls right into that sequence. But I did watch this, I, I watched the, the 47 Ronin. Uh, parts one and two, and then some of the later post war stuff that's also available still only on Hulu 
at least as far as uh, North America is concerned. Uh, this, this of course, this this new uh, 4K transfer Blu-ray is a huge upgrade from the very spotty, scratchy, uh, somewhat faded and inconsistent image that you see on the Hulu stream. Uh, but this this is a pretty remarkable uh, uh, treat, you know, for anybody who loves uh, earlier Japanese cinema. And, uh, yeah, I just kind of made sure I was uh, confident in saying this. But this is the only uh, pre-war Japanese film released on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection to date. There's a few other older Ozu films that are in the main line. And in the Eclipse series, of course, there's a pretty generous sampling of, of uh, you know, even like 1920s and 1930s Japanese film. But this is the first one that we get in the high-definition transfer. And that's... Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, to me, that's that's just something very special. You know, these films were not always the best preserved, and uh, you're not going to see the the gleaming, crisp image that you might have seen in some of the Hollywood uh, pre-war films of, of recent years uh, on Criterion. But uh, this is a this is a huge upgrade from from what you see in Hulu, and it is a very powerful film, especially if you've only seen the. Uh, the shorter, older Mizuguchi films, uh, the two that I just referred to, each clocking in at just a bit over an hour. This is a pretty sprawling epic and uh, one I'm really eager to dig into. Yeah, uh, I've certainly given Criterion a fair share of grief for not introducing more Japanese uh, films to the collection over the last few years, but I think this year they've really gone out of their way to highlight that country's output. And I'm glad you did the research and dug in to find that this was the only pre-war film they put out on Blu-ray because... I wouldn't have thought of that otherwise, but as soon as you mentioned it, I'm like, of course, that's a, that's one of the key periods we've been missing. And this is kind of one of those ultimate great films of that period. I think it's kind of rightly held up as, if not Mizuguchi's best film, then certainly one of his best. Uh, but Ryan, have you seen it before? And how did you find it? This is actually the very first Mizuguchi film that I've seen. I have a whole stack of them in front of me right now, films that I've collected over the years, Sancho the Bailiff, Life of Oharu. Uh, Ugetsu and the Eclipse series, and this is the first one of all of those that I've actually sat down to watch. Uh, something that I love about doing this podcast in general, just over the past you know handful of years, has been the pressure that uh, it gives to me to actually watch the movies that I have on my shelf. And so it was a, a real treat to get into this uh, tonight, to you know, in preparing for this episode. Yeah, I've often talked about how I need to make myself projects just to watch all these films that I collect. And it seems to go pretty well so far, but I'm definitely glad we got to this one. Um, so yeah, this was, uh, I think Mizuguchi himself kind of acknowledged that this was a major turning point after those films from 1936, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion that we talked about in the first part of that Eclipse Viewer episode. Uh, he kind of achieved his first kind of widespread commercial and critical success. And I get the impression that more resources were available to him, even if the utilization of those resources for those two films apparently bankrupted, I think, the studio that he was working for. Yeah, he uh, was working with a very independent Daiichi, yeah. I think. And so it was really kind of an edgy, arty sideline. Uh, but uh, yeah, this this got him back into the graces of the uh, studios. And, and he had actually won awards for, I think, Sisters of the Gion was the first place film and Osaka LG was ranked number three of 1936. Uh, but there were also some censorship issues with those movies. They were set in very contemporary, you know, circumstances of what's happening today. And, and especially with those kind of very forward, uh, independent minded women, uh, as the Japanese government was becoming a little bit more sort of totalitarian and, and kind of, uh, 
very much pressing for more traditional values. Uh, they recognized Mizuguchi's talent, but they kind of were, were putting a little bit of pressure on him to kind of reel it in. And so uh, in a way, he kind of shifted his focus back to a little bit more of a historical setting. And rather than writing the story himself, he adapted some pre-existing material. Yeah, and this was kind of a general movement in the build-up to World War II where Japan as a nation was trying to kind of refocus on traditional values and try to build up a sense of nationalism. And so a lot of filmmakers, I guess, kind of retreated to this period, which was also a very similarly nationalistic period. They were about to write kind of their first constitution in 1890. And so these films set between like in the late 1880s kind of reminded audiences. I mean, this was only, if you think about it, what, 50 years before the film was made. And so there were audiences then who would actually remember the period and remember the feelings and have the sort of similar associations that we do with, I mean, certainly World War II, which is older from us at this point than this period was for them now. And then, then, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but yeah, so, I, but I think he does a lot with that setting. You know, this film has kind of been criticized for the portrayal of its main female character, Otoko, who does sacrifice, as the synopsis said, everything for the sake of uh, Kiku, the main character, the actor. Uh, but I, I think he brings a, a perspective to that character that is really fascinating. I think that just starts with the casting of it. Apparently he cast another actress at first, but she just wasn't responding to him or wasn't delivering the performance that he was kind of looking for. And so he recast the role and the actress he got, Kakuku uh, Mori is fantastic. I mean, this was apparently, I think her only film or at least her last film. And she has such a unique presence, just the timber of her voice. Even she almost seems to merge like a ghost to kind of, out of the nothingness, you know, to kind of correct Kiku in his uh, path to greatness. He's kind of caught up in the glories of being an actor without really refining his craft. And her emergence and presence throughout the film kind of seems in some ways otherworldly and it has a really haunting effect. It's almost like something out of Ugetsu, frankly. Uh, Ryan, what did you think of her performance? Yeah, I mean, it's it's magical. It's interesting that there was, uh, that there has been criticism, I guess, by some people out there that, you know, she that maybe this movie isn't really as feminist as, uh, as some claim it to be, but, uh, I found her performance to be great. I mean, she, she is like a, like a guardian angel for Kiku in, in many ways in that she, you know, helps him, you know, focus on his art and tells him what he needs to hear when he needs to hear it in the way that will help him. I mean, so often when people, uh, you know, in our own lives, give us criticism, you know, especially us here, maybe on the podcast, when we hear criticism, it's different than <laughs> if, if, you know, like our, our friends and family give it to us. Uh, and it, it, and that definitely affects how people take criticism. And so it's interesting to watch this movie all about, you know, how one person can change, uh, you know, the direction of an artist just by, you know, telling them the truth about what they, what's really happening or how they're really you know performing, how they're really creating, um, yeah, I thought she did a, a fantastic job at it. And I think uh, his performance, too, is n nicely modulated. I mean, we get a lot of kind of ellipses through the film that are common for Mizuguchi where, you know, we could cut somewhere and it'll be the next second or it could be cut somewhere and we'd be four years in the future. And he, I think more so than her, has to go through a lot of transformations that could be tough to kind of pull off. But uh, he was apparently a very renowned stage actor and apparently performed in some role in the stage version of this uh, story. And I couldn't tell based on the wording of this book that I was reading, uh, 
whether he was playing the female role, because apparently he was known for playing female roles on stage. And so that's kind of brought into this film where he's playing an actor who's known for their female roles. But he, both the actors really, I mean, do such a lot with just their body movements and using their body to express things because Mijiguchi uses no close-ups throughout the entire film. And so we don't have uh, facial expressions or anything, especially the condition the film survives in now. I mean, the 4K, rest, 4K transfer is great, but it's not... Uh, it doesn't give the complete depth that we might be used to with uh, Blu-ray transfers these days, but they're so expressive in their bodies that I never lose track of uh, the emotion. David, did you have any thoughts on the acting styles? Well, yeah. I mean, th- this is a film about the Kabuki theater, and I guess the was it Shinpei plays is is kind of a kind of a hybrid of traditional Kabuki theater with some Western elements to it where there is more, a little bit more kind of dramatic uh, emotional characterization, whereas, you know, the most traditional kabuki is, is very posed and there's almost kind of a geometric or gymnastic type of, you know, how the bodies are positioned and, of course, the staging. And we get some really beautiful uh, sequences at the beginning, middle, and, and end of the film that really bring us into that kabuki milieu. But... Um, but the, the actors themselves really do rely on body language, the tilt of the head or the cast of the eyes. So even though we're not really zooming in on the faces, there's so much uh, about the 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 uh, you know the shame or the repression, the emotional kind of reluctance to fully divulge their feelings. There's a, there's a lot of you know surface conformity. Uh, the, you know a lot of the a lot of the the, the dramatic tension of the story. Uh, is based on the fact that this this uh, you know Kiku the the main character is the adoptive son of a very great man a a, a noted actor kind of a legendary figure uh, and he stands to be the heir of this you know acting empire if you will uh, and and because he's a, a a young man in a powerful position he's flattered and 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 kind of spoken to you know quite glowingly to his face but then mocked and teased uh, by all the jealousy and the haters behind him and he is a young man and he's a somewhat mediocre talent at, in the early stages of the film and i suppose it probably takes a little bit of a, a a cultured eye understanding the nuances of kabuki to to see why he's not as good as as the other actors on stage but you sort of see him in an early scene kind of preening and kind of you know, strutting around and drawing attention to himself, where I think, you know, to the, you know, the connoisseur of, of Kabuki, it's about doing the moves just right or, or positioning yourself with great precision and great discipline. Uh, th- that's what the audience is reacting to. And he's, he's regarded as kind of a ham or he's kind of a, he's kind of improvising. He's kind of going off script a little bit in this very traditional theater format. So, yeah, that that that's Kiku, uh, and then Atoku, the 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 female lead here, is also, uh, um, you know, a humble woman from a very, uh, you know, very pedestrian background. Uh, she says uh, she's a poor map maker's daughter, and she's hired in as a wet nurse for the 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 young son, that the infant who's just been fathered by the great, you know, the the great patriarch of the family, and so now all of a sudden Kiku has a He's, even though he's a very young rival, he is potentially somebody who's going to get the uh, 
you know, the father's attention as he matures. And so, you know, Kiku's in a little bit of a of an awkward place, but uh, he, he wants to strike out on his own and in a very impetuous moment decides, you know, he's going to, uh, you know, forsake his, his advantages and, uh, and try to, uh, you know, try to try to create his own, his own reputation. And, uh, you know, he, he flounders, but it's because he's, He's also found love. He's found genuineness with Otoku that uh, nobody else has been able to show him. And so, yeah, so there is the, there is though this this uh, this angst and this this emotion, but it's it's you know it's not conveyed in what we typically think of as melodrama, although the melodramatic elements are, are definitely there. And it is it's 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 very refreshing and a very uh, unique style um, that that conveys conveys those feelings very powerfully uh but in a way that maybe is different than other films of this era you know from you know other countries or whether that's europe or or uh, hollywood and the traditional north american cinema going, going back to that that opening kabuki sequence that we see it does take a couple of viewings i think to kind of understand what it is that he's doing wrong and maybe even more than a couple and maybe even more than just watching the movie you kind of need uh some some outsider uh you know reading on on that material or even the i think maybe in the interview with philip lopate on the blu-ray he talks a little bit about that moment and shows off what what is going on there just because i found that <clears throat> the the audio and the poor quality of the video is kind of hard to see in some sequences like who is actually whose mouth is actually moving and who's talking yeah, for sure <laughs> and uh in that in that opening sequence in particular, I found it really hard to understand what was going on in that play the first time I was watching it. And so later on, as I rewatched it, then I noticed like, oh, yeah, there he is. The that's So this is the actor that we're meant to be focusing on. Here he is in the corner. And this is him, you know, coming out first when he shouldn't be or, you know, like drawing the audience's attention. I mean, the music and the audience laughing and as well as the, the actors talking all at the same time sometimes makes it... Uh, really hard to kind of focus on what it what it is that we're meant to be seeing from the director's point of view especially yeah i was since, well, sorry especially since he's you know shooting everything in these wide wide shots and not really focusing on or not 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 cutting to any close-ups to let us see who's who's doing the talking or what we're meant to be focusing on as the audience yeah i was probably most impressed with whoever did the subtitles for this because just picking out what's being said at any given moment seems like a, a nightmare i mean maybe they had a shooting script to work out with but it's certainly a remarkable job and without subtitles even if you spoke japanese i can't imagine totally understanding what's going on but yeah i mean i will be the first to admit that i could not tell the difference between a good kabuki performance and a bad kabuki performance uh and i, I mean i've seen the film twice and even so and the first part, I'm not sure entirely what he's doing exactly wrong, but I think Mizuguchi sets it up in such a way that that first performance is in such a wide open space and he does shoot it with such wide, uh, at wide angles. And so we don't really see like the work he's putting in or if he's putting in any work. And the psychological effect then when it gets to kind of his comeback performance is uh, startling because there's much more, not exactly close-ups, but tighter shots around his body and around his work on the stage and so i i just got the impression just from the way mizuguchi framed it that his performance was going over quite well you know we kind of famously don't get any way to track his progress as an actor in those intervening four years there's no like sign that he's doing any of the work that would be involved or 
improving or in any demonstrable way. We only have Otaku's word on it at all. And then so when we see him perform finally, we don't really know, you know, if it's going over well, but there's something about the way Mizuguchi shoots it that I think is pretty convincing. And I think this is really where Mizuguchi's background as a painter and kind of his facility with images really speaks a lot. And as much as the actors are doing great work and expressing the emotion of the story through their body movements and the tone of their voice and all that, it's just as much Mizuguchi's uh, staging and the lighting and the sets and everything else that goes into it. All the kind of aesthetic beauty of it really works in a way beyond just looking really great. Yeah, he he uses some really interesting camera angles. I, I think about the 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 long walk that uh, Kiku and Otaku Otoku take um, in the in the late evening. Uh, he's coming back from a night of kind of you know carousing and uh, kind of the life of a privileged young man out on the town, and as he's kind of creeping his way back home uh, there's a toku who's out walking the baby when it's really warm at night and the baby's restless and can't sleep and this chance encounter just is kind of this epiphany moment for for him in particular you know she's just you know she's a good-hearted woman who's just kind of sharing with him uh some thoughts that are on her mind and it's it's just kind of galvanizing for him but but again it's it's this this kind of low shot sort of at this kind of odd angle and you see a big portion of the upper screen is just black it's it's night but you see the you know kind of the architecture of this uh, walkway or this street that they're on and it's just a very very unusual shot and it goes on for quite a long time in fact i mean this is where the mizuguchi long takes i guess really establish themselves and some of them are are very lengthy like seven eight nine minutes even so uh you know that's quite a quite a quite an achievement, and again, you, you know, you can just kind of get lost in the movie, and you're just taking it all in, and you don't realize, wow, they they had to really choreograph quite a bit of, uh, you know, performance. There's background actors, there's just camera movements. You know, it, this is a very uh, ingeniously structured sequence, and there's quite a few of them uh, throughout the film. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, this is again where the rewatchability comes in because, you know, there's that initial, just getting into the story, kind of following the saga of this actor and, and his, uh, his kind of, his realization. Uh, but then there's also just the brilliance of how it's put together. And then this just really fully rendered world. I mean, Mizuguchi was, was quite known for the meticulous detail of his sets, uh, even, even trying to get. You know, artifacts from this era, the Meiji era, I guess is what it's called, and and you know the furnishings, the clothing, the the you know architecture, uh, the just the bric-a-brac of items and and uh, furnishings and and uh, all of that kind of stuff. You know, he would go to antique shops and kind of rummage through and find things from a specific year and time just to make sure that the look was as authentic as, as it could be. And and this really is like a world that I feel like I'd just like to explore around but there's so much depth of focus and and there's you know so much richness in the scenery that you really can just sort of just kind of let the story go and just kind of watch what's going on on the visual side and uh you know just kind of get lost and explore around uh, just let your eye wander a little bit there's a lot of cool things going on yeah, I watched this over two nights just for time management purposes. And even though it was getting late on that first night, I just wanted to keep watching, keep watching. It's just so hypnotic and the story is 
so involving on just a, a human level. I mean, sometimes with these uh, kind of famous art films, it becomes easy to kind of talk in esoteric terms. But I hope any listeners out there who haven't seen the film yet, if you are listening, uh, this really just absolutely galvanizing drama. And really, I think at every moment, Mizuguchi has, and his screenwriters too, we shouldn't uh, discount their work, but they have a real eye towards sort of setting up little climaxes and little uh, cliffhangers, you know, and just from wondering shot to shot where you're going to end up next. You know, that scene where uh, Kiku leaves on the train and Otaku isn't there to meet him is really kind of quietly heartbreaking and kind of lends so much tension to be like, well, where is she? And, you know, that can't be the last time they see each other. And just all these little moments that uh, add up to quite a thrilling plot for such a slow moving film. Yeah. There are a number of shots that kind of, um, like echo each other throughout, like the, the way that the film is structured. Um, someone described it as like a V where it, you know, shots at the beginning kind of match shots towards the end. And that shot when he's looking for her on the train kind of felt like that, you know, that, that panning shot at the beginning when they're walking together, but this is him now like walking you know down without her. Yeah. And then, I mean, the camera is just so active in so many small ways that that scene where they meet up, kind of secretly at first and he has to kind of send a messenger to go find her and then when they meet up the camera eventually kind of settles down to where they're sitting but it starts kind of higher up and it keeps kind of i don't know if this is like a complete accident but i have to believe with mizuguchi it's at least somewhat purposeful the camera kind of slowly bobs down a little bit when it's up high right before it sinks and it kind of gives the impression that they want they're trying to be comfortable with one another to accept that they can't quite be but they're trying for that intimacy at every moment it's little touches like that that have this really odd psychological effect. You had mentioned that there's no close-ups in the movie, but the closest shot that I could find that, that stood out to me is that moment when he's running to, to her, you know, he discovers that she's ill and dying and they take the little, the carts to, um, to go, you know, catch up to her or, you know, to go to where she's staying. And there's a shot where he gets off the, the little rickshaw cart and then starts to kind of run towards the camera. And it just stands right out. If you're, when you're watching this movie, you know, many times and you, and you're noticing all these, all these shots that are so far away from, from the action and the actors, we finally get one shot. That's about like as close to a close up as we can get when he runs towards the camera. And it's just, uh, I thought it was, you know, like, you know, when you, when you're denied something for so long, like a close-up shot, any anything that resembles a close-up just immediately sticks out and is like grabs you by the yeah. by the throat. Yeah, and it's and it's pretty late in the film. I mean, it's yeah. it's a very compelling moment because you see all that that anguish on his face and and that kind of realization that something awful is going on and he's just got to get there because time is of the essence. And you're right. I mean. You, Again, you know, there's there's the power of the shot, his body language, his facial expression, but again, it's just it just kind of jumps out at you because you haven't really had that chance to, you know, get right in the actor's face. And and again, a lot of a lot of Western viewers are kind of accustomed to that. And so, where is that? But but Mizuguchi, I think, quite brilliantly, you know, saves that for for this very pivotal moment. Uh, and again, it's 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 an interesting thing because th this is you know the, especially in the context of Mizuguchi's Fallen Women, the Eclipse v uh, series set, and and also the other films that he's um, most noted for, uh, even character, you know, even films like Ugetsu and Sancho the Bailiff, where the male figures are are pretty 
crucial to the plot. He's he's well known for having women who you know are you know long suffering, uh, often virtuous and and almost like martyr like uh, victims of circumstances. And certainly, there's no there's no um, you know. Well, that's equally true here, but but in this case, you know, the the focus of the film, at least on the surface, is is this character of Kiku, and and even though you 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 sympathize with him and and you you know you you uh, find yourself to a certain extent rooting for him, he he's not like this you know saintly virtuous character. He's actually like I think Philip Lope calls him a wimp, you know, and I think that that's true. He he's. He's a he's he's a bit of a of a brat. He's a little bit of a you know privileged, uh, conceited young man, who uh, you know as he's as he's making some decisions to to go out and kind of pursue his own course. Yeah, you know, he 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 does make some sacrifices for Otoku, but he doesn't exactly give her the 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 life. Or uh, and once he's kind of won her affection and convinced her to. To come along with him in this in this quest, uh, he leaves her behind in some certain certain scenes. So you you recognize that her sacrifice and her dedication, her commitment to this man, isn't exactly reciprocated. And and he's kind of coming you know towards the end of the film to realize you know that in some very fundamental ways he's let her down. He's he's you know pursued what ultimately turns out to be a selfish course. And I guess that's the that's the theme that just kind of runs so consistently through so many of Mizuguchi's films from the beginning, or at least from the part of his career where where you know we're able to to view his films. Both the majority of his early stuff, of course, long gone, long lost. But uh, you know, here we see you know uh, a, a really good woman you know, who's not done right by the men in her life, uh, and. Uh, yeah, I, th- this is just a very, very fascinating sort of psychology of of male and female relationships uh, in traditional Japanese culture. Yeah, and that's where I really have to wonder, you know, where people kind of see this as a purely kind of imperialist or anti-feminist uh, film. I, you know, I don't think they're looking at all the angles of the film. I mean, the, Kiku is definitely an improvement on the men we saw in. Osaka Elegy or Sisters of Gion, who they were all just like pathetic and completely disposable and just wielding their power in terrible ways. At least Kiku kind of eventually realizes what he's done and who he's been and does make sacrifices along the way for Otoku. Uh, but he is still, you know, kind of a, a negative character and kind of puts himself first at every stage, even though he does kind of insist upon her well being whenever he can, you know he kind of gives up as soon as there's any kind of resistance or anyone saying, no, it's okay. You can, you can keep going. And then when you see her just completely alone towards the end of the film, going back to the house they once lived in, you know, that's the long shot of her just sitting in the dark is completely devastating. And I think, you know, Mizuguchi was just very realistic about the way women were treated in society and didn't shy away from the, you know, more unfortunate aspects of their existences. And he just expected the audience to kind of do the work and get on his wavelength of their sympathies, which, you know, might not have always worked. This film was widely acclaimed within Japanese society and Mizuguchi kind of went up at the ranks of the Japanese film industry along the way. And you get the sense that maybe 
the industry bigwigs kind of saw it as kind of that purely imperialist statement and saw that the sacrifice of Otoku was right and just and all that. But I, I think watching the film now, especially kind of removed somewhat with, from that cultural context, you can really see how much emphasis he places on her loneliness, on her desperation. And much of the appeal, I think, of watching the film is just watching both of the characters kind of go to the extremes of their feelings. You know, he completely breaks from his family when he feels great affection for her and she gives up everything for him. And that's kind of one of the central appeals of drama and especially melodrama is watching characters go to extreme ends for these kind of base emotions that we all feel at one point or another. It's hardly love though. And it's, or, you know, affection. It's more just, um, I don't know what it is. It doesn't feel like love though, or at least not in the Western sense, perhaps. Well, yeah, I, I think there is. There is this kind of emotional constriction, and it, it feels like it's just kind of always on the verge of breaking out. I mean, for Otoku, you know, she she has feelings for the young master, but it's really she she kind of sublimates her own emotional needs so that uh, she can support him in the development of his art. I mean, I think you know, there's there's times where she says, you know, art is the most important, or art is everything, and you know, art's great. I, I, I like my art, but I think in an interpersonal relationship, there's got to be something that's on a on that deeper, you know, uh, you know, intimate level than the things that we make or the things that we enjoy watching or interacting with on a cultural level. Uh, but, but she, 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 she very, she's very reluctant to see herself as his equal. I mean, she, she's very conscious of her servant status and he's the young master and he's the exalted, talented one. And her, and her role is to be this kind of subservient supporter but but I don't you know that's I think your observation is is spot on there Scott that in the traditional values mores of the of the society of that time of the authorities figures you know they they see Otoku as a role model for young women I think Mizuguchi's got a little bit more of a subversive agenda here which is to say this is what's expected of women but it's not right that we are expecting that of women so. I mean, there, there's a lot of nuance in this, and I guess it does kind of come down to our own biases as, as to how we're going to interpret this. But that, again, that's why this is great art. And, and the same with Kiku. He's, you know, he's born and destined to greatness in the traditional order of things. Uh, and yet, is he really worthy of that status, or does he just sort of luck into it? I think... You know, if you look at some of the dialogue of some of the supporting characters who are kind of, you know, when he was just Shoko, you know, people were laughing and booing and jeering. But now that he's back in the good graces of the family towards the end of the film, well, everybody's applauding and going nuts again because, you know, he's 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 the man. He's the heir apparent. And apparently that was a big deal in, in Kabuki is like your lineage and and your connections and and. Uh, so, you know, so while Mizuguchi may be seen as maybe endorsing that in a certain sense, I, I, I think if you just sort of step back, you say there's there's something that's just not quite right about this. And yet these characters can't really completely break out of the mold uh, or or that burden of expectations and, and have that fully, you know, complementary and, and reciprocated uh, relationship where where it's kind of love between a man and woman as equals or, or, uh, as, as, as partners in a mutually satisfying relationship. 
I just thought of this as you were talking, so I might be completely off base, uh, but I wanted to hear you guys' thoughts on it. Uh, the extent to which it matters in kind of viewing this as the Japanese audiences might have at the time, would Kiku's kind of willingness to go off on this kind of quest to better himself be viewed as a necessary part of improvement, or do you think his kind of born to station life would be assumed to be sufficient? Is there something kind of extra heroic about him going off on his own, I guess? Uh, I, I think I, I think the fact that he's he's taken the necessary steps to perfect his art. I mean, there, there's a virtue that's being sort of played up in that. Um, it seems like he had to take this quest uh, in the context of the story. He could not have just stayed under his father's you know tutelage and and you know forsaken this you know, this uh, bond that he established with Otoku and, and wound up in the same place. So there is, I guess there is a kind of a reconciliation that happens towards the end between, you know, father and son and an acceptance of, of on the father's part of, of his marriage. And then Otoku, of course, hears about this, you know, we're in the major spoiler territory here, but on, on her deathbed and all of that. Um, and so, yeah, again, so all so the virtual tropes are all kind of played out there that, uh, you know, this is this is a you know, tragic ending, but it's it's also, I don't know, a happy ending in a certain sense, because everybody's ultimate purpose has been fulfilled. But again, I, I just can't get past the this suspicion that Mizuguchi is going according to the script, because again, this, this is an adapted novel. This is presumably a, a bestseller or a, a very popular tale uh, of its time. Um, but I think he's bringing, you know, at least, you know, a critical eye or maybe, maybe I am projecting into, it, I guess I can't ultimately say, but it, it seems to me that, He's he's not just giving you the face value interpretation of this film. He's giving you a lot of reasons to think that this is this is just a a, a tragedy. It's kind of a shame that things wound up this way, uh, even though you know there's a nobility at that surface level of of Otoku's you know self sacrifice uh, for the sake of art and for the sake of the man that that uh, she's dedicated herself to. Yeah, I think certainly going by Osaka, Elegy, and Sisters of Gion, most definitely by his later work, he was, yeah, I mean, to say that Mizuguchi across his career was uh, unsympathetic to the plight of women would be a, a stretch and I think it would be a hard case to make, especially with the very, as we said in that episode, a didactic ending of Sisters of the Gion. Um, but Ryan, is your first uh, Mizuguchi film, how do you feel about this? You're going to keep going with him? Yeah, absolutely. I think I have... Uh, I think this is a nice starting off point. It's also led me down the path of reading more uh, pieces of criticism on him. And um, I, I don't know which one I'm going to go to next. I don't know if I should go, keep, go in order, go back from, and start with the, with the, the films that are in that eclipse set or, um, you know, hit some of the other uh, high points of his films. But the, uh, the DVD release of Ugetsu contains a documentary that, um, that uh, Kaneda Shindo made uh, about Mizuguchi, and that one has been pretty helpful in kind of figuring out his career from a, you know a beginner's point of view for me at least, and to think about like where I want to go from here. 
David, have you seen uh, like Udamaro and his five women or any of the other films Mizuguchi made kind of about the theatrical or artistic life? I mean, so much of this film is kind of wrapped up in kind of the artist's role in society and how prominent and then also in the other end of things, how uh, tiny a place they have in society. You know, you see kind of the highs and the lows of the theatrical life. Did you see any elements in those other yeah, films? Have yes, you seen I, I've seen Udamaro and was it Chikamitsu's story? Or, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I've seen basically everything that he's had on Hulu I, I've watched, but it's been a few years. But yeah, he really does seem to love getting into the theatrical settings and and there are some really wonderful scenes and i think some of uh, uh when uh, kiku becomes shoko and some of those <laughs> kind of down and out years you know when the, the troop is kind of dissolved in favor of uh you know female sumo wrestlers you know just like yeah it, it's not exactly comedy in the you know, what you might think of comic but it's definitely a, a nice little change of pace it's just kind of a little you know you know slightly bonkers scene uh when the the stage is getting torn down and the and the uh the manager comes out and kind of has a little fit and basically kicks the bums out and you just got a a sense of of uh kind of the scrappiness uh of the attendant actor's life uh as as kiku has kind of you know hit the skids and and really recognizes that uh you know the 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 lucky break that he had had and and uh and how far he is from where he ultimately wants to wind up so yeah it, i i feel like especially having watched this film uh, not just one time through just to kind of plow through the mizuguchi that's out there but really absorbing it and and kind of inhabiting this world a little bit i i'm definitely eager to to revisit you know some of those other films and and i i truly do hope that criterion will make more of his uh, you know, features uh, available uh, in the years to come. Yeah, that moment definitely. when they, the moment when they get kicked out of the theater was fun for me just because it was, I went down a whole rabbit hole of reading about su- female sumo wrestlers and the, <laughs> the, the history of them. Cause it, when they said that, I thought, huh, why haven't, why don't I haven't, I seen female sumo wrestlers. And then I read all about the, like the, I guess in the 18th century there there was a whole thing with female sumo wrestlers, but then they were kind of women were kind of forbidden from wrestling in that uh, in the 20th century, I guess. Anyway, it was a, it was a fun little rabbit hole I went on. Yeah, and I mean, what what a degradation for an actor! Like we're gonna be kicked out of here so that they could bring a female sumo troupe in. Like man, how how much worse is it gonna get or something? Well, and that's another example of just Mizuguchi's visual storytelling where you have these enormous women just plowing in and be like, what's all this then? Mm-hmm. It is a nice little comedic beat. Um, well, yeah, as for the disc itself, I, I think it looks pretty good. I know people are slagging on the transfer and the sound quality and all that, but I, I saw this on film originally and it didn't look any better there. So I think this is like, this is what exists of the film and I think they did a pretty good job in presenting it. Yeah, I mean, it it is... It is kind of tough to watch in parts. There's not a lot of detail in some areas. Some look some some places look better than others, but um, the audio and the, video, the visual quality of the film is not great. It's certainly not one of the you know great restorations that we've seen on Blu-ray. Um, as David mentioned, the Hulu version is much worse. Uh, but I think what I liked in watching the Hulu version a little bit just to compare the two was that you can get a little bit more. I feel like the, the Blu-ray release is much darker than the Hulu one. And so you lose some of the, um, like the details in some of those shadowy areas that are much darker in 
uh, on the Blu-ray, and I, I was fiddling around with the, the, the black settings on my TV just to see if I could get more of the details in some of the images on second viewing, just because I felt like the, that my first viewing was, it felt so dark. Like I thought maybe I was, maybe I had overcranked the, you know, like the, the contrast or brightness on my TV to a point where I was losing some of the image. But then, you know, even, even in looking at screenshots that I've seen on other places, I don't, I think it's just a matter of the, the restoration itself. But when you watch the, the Hulu version, you can see some, some things that you didn't see in the Blu-ray. Yeah, Mizuguchi definitely isn't uh, shy about darkening off parts of the screen, though. You know, there's some shots where he seems to block off uh, entire halves of the screen to create kind yeah. of a widescreen effect, which is pretty. I cool. know that. Uh, I know where like the the, the whole move, or you know, the whole scene takes place, like on the bottom half or the top yeah. half. Uh, but I I kind of appreciated that. I liked it. Felt uh, you know, like he's really making you focus on a specific part uh, of the scene. Yeah, and, oh, he's, sure. and he's just exploring the possibilities of, of what the camera can do and, and how the picture can be framed. I mean, you get the sense that here's a man who's very adventurous, but also very disciplined. I mean, he's not. this is not just kind of random whimsy uh, with the camera, but he's, he's, he's charting into new territory. And I'm sure, especially in the, in the um, you know, context of other Japanese filmmakers of his time, you know, very bold, very innovative, uh, and also, to some extent, aware of what's happening in the West. You know, uh, bringing in some some uh, influences from what he's probably seeing happening in in other like theatrical adaptations. You know, some of the the musicals from Hollywood. I'm sure they were coming over to Japan at that time, or he'd had a, a access to see some of them. Some of that backstage commotion going on and, and things of that sort. Uh, I, I also really love that that kind of final the the what was it the the lion and his cubs you know uh, that kind mm-hmm. of whole twir- yeah. twirling the wigs kind of a proto headbanger type of thing going on there <laughs> P- pretty awesome sequence there yeah and it kind of as with the prior uh, theatrical scenes it reflects the mood as well you know everyone's kind of celebratory that Kiku's back in the family and everyone is you know theoretically happy again it kind of is a Nice, different way of reflecting that. But yeah, Adventures was exactly the word I was going to use in terms of the camera. I mean, there's nothing that I can think of kind of like this for the 1930s, for the late 1930s, for in terms of blocking off the frame like that or using the frame like that in terms of the long takes. This is really kind of striking out some unique territory. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting contrast to the way that Ozu would, would shoot, you know, or the way that he's so famously known for shooting. Uh, it's just, you know, a completely different take on it. Yeah, I think Ozu was still, I mean, he was definitely well along the way by the late 1930s in kind of his famous kind of trademark uh, style there. Um, but if you look at some of the other Eclipse films from from this era, you know, the early Kenoshita stuff, uh, the Hiroshi Shimizu, th- there's some interesting things going on cinematically with those, with those uh, sets, with those films. But... Um, it's more the charm of the characters with with uh, Kenosha. It's just the fascination of of watching Japan's war effort ramp up over the course of his films. And of course, there's the early Kurosawa films where you know he comes in and he's got his own kind of boldness. But but clearly at this place at this point in time, Mizuguchi is is the master of Japanese cinema in terms of just technique and virtuosity uh and ambition you know i mean this is a this is a lengthy film i don't know if he had done any others of this of this scope you know like i say um, 
uh, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion are each like 75, 80 minutes long. So back to your earlier point, Ryan, I, I would say, you know, taking at least one or two of those for 1936 films just to sort of get a sense of the transition from, you know, the very in-the-moment uh, urbane contemporary stories that uh, Mizuguchi was telling to this historic thing, and then maybe work your way on up to some of the, you know, the benchmark classics, you know, Ugetsu, Sancho, Oharu, and, and some of that other stuff there. So, uh, you know, the, he he really was feeling it right at this point to say, okay, let's go for a two-and-a-half-hour, you know, magnum opus here, and I think he pulls it off. It's It's a very compelling film, and uh, one I'm really thrilled that uh, they've taken the step to to put this one in the in the collection. Yeah, and Mizuguchi would go even further with the length, adventurousness with doing forty seven Ronin. What two years later? Yeah, it's like a, a, that's a four film, hour epic. Four hours. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he did and, not that, lack that, for ambition. No, and and that's one that I you know, it, it, and that that one that you know that's 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 a bit of a it's a a little bit more of a chore. It, it's it's slow moving. Uh, but it's epic. It's it's a it's a great you know immortal story of of Japanese literature and culture. Uh, you know, uh, you know the Keanu Reeves version a few years ago <laughs> is kind of the latest. Iteration I'm sure they're comparable. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Side by side. You know, let's let's uh, go shot for shot there. Um, but uh, that would be one that I think uh, just the magnitude of it uh, is definitely worthy of a standalone release, uh, as well as the restoration and all the other things. Uh, you know. That that would be one I would uh, hope to see next, actually, if I could make a comparison. But I know Scott, you've got you've got the uh, was it the artificial eye or or Eureka? Who who, Eureka. who was it that put out yeah, Eureka? They put out the big Mizuguchi Blu-ray set, which I think that's a out of print and expensive item. It is days, sadly, right? yeah, unfortunately, because it's a great set that I would be recommending more heartily if it wasn't impossible to get a hold of and. I know that pain because I want their Naruse set very badly, but that is similarly impossibly expensive. But that Mizuguchi set is just the later films of his, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's a great set. And actually there is, mm -hmm. I think it's Artificial Eye, there's kind of a mid-period selection of his films that's supposed to be pretty good. I don't have it, but uh, yeah, the late well, Mizuguchi what... set is a wonder. Yeah, the Artificial Eye Blu-ray release was one that a lot of people were comparing this to when it was, when this when this Criterion Edition came out, um, Shochiku did a did the restoration, the the new 4K restoration of the film, and so you can com you can go and find comparisons to the two different Blu-rays. Um, the Criterion one obviously looks a lot like the Shochiku one, and then um, the Artificial Eye one. I think a lot of people were just saying that it was kind of like a almost like a blown up DVD transfer. And, uh, you know, there's still detail to be found in it, but uh, it definitely looks like two different restorations. Um, but then the audio, I think, is from the audio that Shochiku used was just uh, like an improved or like a, a slightly cleaned up version of uh, what was on that artificial eye disc. But um, the audio is just hit or miss for me. I was I watched the first half of the movie. I did it in two parts like you. Um, I watched the first half with head like Bluetooth headphones on on my television and I had to turn the volume way down because it was just... Uh, there was a lot of noise that I was yeah. hearing in my headphones, um, at the, especially in that opening sequence where I couldn't make out what was going on. In, you know, people, different people talking along with the music was just cranked up way too loud, um, and you know, it was just it was hard to make out. So, anyway, I but... also watched half the movie with headphones and found the same <laughs> experience. Uh, yeah, if if you can do it, listeners, definitely watch this movie without headphones. The 
kind of audio distractions play a lot better with speakers and kind of filling your room. Uh, but the music in the film is really strong. So I mean, I hate to hate on it too much, but yeah, for the theatrical scenes, especially kind of the drums and the audience noise and everything kind of creates this cacophony of noise. That's a little, yeah. uh, aggressive. Just realize, I mean, this, this film and, and really again, Japanese films of this era really are precious relics. I think going all the way back to the, Silent Naruse set that uh, Scott and, and Rob Nishimura and I reviewed in the episode two of the Eclipse Viewer. I mean, you, you sometimes get the sense that we're looking at the like the last surviving print <laughs> of these films, and this one here is not quite as rough as those. But the fact is, I mean, Japan just did not have the kind of film preservation. I mean, Hollywood, you know, even classic Hollywood had its own issues and limitations. Japan just in many cases did not you know pay the same respect to these great uh cultural and cinematic treasures so what we have is you know maybe more than a, just a fluke but uh you know it it survived a a very tough transition from uh when it was produced to to today so uh yeah you're going to maybe have to you know uh compromise your standards a little bit if you're just looking for the pristine image and the flawless sound and and, and all of that, but uh, just no, the fact totally. that these films survived to this day is is quite a privilege to watch it. Now. Yeah, absolutely. I don't mean to complain about this oh, too no, much, yeah. but uh, it is, and it is kind of nice to have these these releases from Criterion that aren't perfect because this is all that they have, but they still felt it necessary to release it. Um, so often we're kind of spoiled with the, the the you know the pristine 4K restorations of these films that were once thought lost, and now we suddenly have this amazing new image. Um, it is nice to see something that. You know, you have to squint or rewatch over and over again to kind of make out what's going on. I totally appreciate that. Um, but uh, and like you were saying about the the lost Japanese films in, I think it was in the documentary that I was watching where they talk about uh, Mizuguchi's film career from in the twenties when he was just making all kinds of different movies and they were saying that he even would go and try to do different genres and that maybe he, you know that he also he did some like horror films based on like the horror films that were coming out in Hollywood. And I would love to see something like that, but you know, all that stuff is just, is, is, is gone. Yeah. I think well, you'll definitely made, have to watch you get to, there's a taste of horror in that. For oh sure. yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a wonderful ghost story. I think there's maybe like somewhere between six to a dozen films that preceded the, uh, you know, Osaka elegy, uh, that are, that are around, but I don't know of any, you know, conveniently accessible source for some of that earlier stuff but you're right i think he did he did detective stories kind of like the early ozu you know you see ozu kind of scattering around a lot of different genres as well i mean these were just basically just young guys taking work and say here's a story go film it it's like okay boss <laughs> yeah we'll uh, we'll make a movie and and uh own their craft along the way so yeah it, i thought in the in the interview i thought maybe he had said that this was that when he did Story of the Last Chrysanthemum, this was his 50th movie? Is that... Uh, is that it's I, at least that many. I counted many, over yeah. 70. Yeah. Um, it, and that might be including like shorts right. or something. Right. Yeah, yeah. Some of the films were 15, 20 minutes long. Maybe it was one oh, reelers right. or two reelers. But they were still, you know, completed films. But, yeah, I don't even know that Mizuguchi knew exactly how many films he made, you know? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, but yeah, I mean, he also said that, you know, he didn't really feel like he at least, or that anyone can really make a great work before they turned 40. And at this point he was about 41 and, uh, he definitely got there. 
but David, since this is your pick, I'll give you the last word if there's anything we didn't get to or any final things you want to say about the film. No, I, I mean, I think this is a this is a, a real masterpiece. Uh, I mean, if you've got any interest in, in Japanese film uh, from a historic or, or just uh, kind of understanding, you know, who the big guys are and, and, and what makes them so great, uh, I think this is a very, you know, very essential disc. It's not loaded with features. I mean, there's a uh, Philip Lepate, uh, you know, 20-minute or so kind of, you know, talking head interview with a few little clips and stills thrown in there. And that's pretty much it. So uh, this is certainly not the gaudiest package that Criterion's put out there. Uh, But it is a rarity. Uh, I think it's pretty exquisite in its own way. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, just one of many, you know, jewels that uh, have been released by Criterion this year. Um, You know, maybe not not the one that's going to jump out the pile first and say, wow, this is awesome. But uh, I, I think it's very much, uh, you know, very very worth the time and 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 even a little bit of effort if it if this is this is kind of new stuff uh, for listeners out there. But uh, I'm just delighted that uh, that that they've uh, proceeded to kind of crack into uh, the earlier stages of Mizuguchi with the Blu-ray, and I hope it gets an appreciative audience out there. As do I. Perhaps there will be a flash sale around the corner. Maybe even by the time this episode goes up, who knows. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks for joining us, guys. David, thanks for staying up late. Yeah, um, no, my pleasure. Yeah, this has been a real fun experience for me, just kind of uh, revisiting Mizuguchi and looking forward to the next uh, conversation for uh, Women of the Night and Street of Shame, the kind of the later stages of Mizuguchi's career uh, when you and Trevor and I get together uh, next week. For sure. And uh, Ryan will be back on for more Chronicles, but thanks for joining us for another Mainline episode. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, listeners, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you later. Bye. So I'll continue to continue to pretend My life will never end And flowers never bend with the rainfall do either of you guys know what the title refers to, the, the chrysanthemum? Like, who is the last chrysanthemum that it, that it refers to? Or does it refer to a, a thing? A you know, I don't story? know. I, I think that must have just been the title of the story, the novel, and maybe they, uh-huh. they, they, they use that. But you're right. Is, is Kikunosuke, uh, is that a nickname of chrysanthemum? Is that his... His, because yeah, kind of, you, you kind of get the sense that this is the last actor of the of the, you know, the tradition or something like that, or like mm-hmm. you know, after this generation passes, we'll never see its like again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have no idea where that title really comes from or what it signifies. I tried I tried googling for it and I could not come up with any answers. Usually, if I type in like. Why? What is like? Why is this titled the story of the last chrysanthemum? Someone else will have asked that question, and it will have come up. But I couldn't find any yeah, discussion about and it. I've, I've read a few reviews as well, uh, and that never seems to be touched upon, which is interesting because a lot of times that's just an easy in for uh, for commentators or critics to sort of decode yeah. that for us and and get us going. But uh, no, I, that's a <laughs> puzzle. All right, well, I'll keep looking. <laughs>